Oh Lord, as we now come to your word, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Give us understanding. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us the grace that we need to apply your word to our lives. That it would not be just information, but that it would be what transforms us. Help us, O Lord. Prevent us, O Lord, from being merely hearers of your word. Teach us and convict us to be doers of your word. Use this time, O Lord, to instruct us, to correct us, to comfort us. Lord, you know our needs. And we know that your word accomplishes your work. And so we trust you with that and commit this time to your word that we may know more about you and what you would have for us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, we're mostly going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today, kind of. Uh, but we're going to kind of be all over the place as we uh, introduce a new series in, uh, in Matthew uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. So you might want to start actually in Matthew chapter 4 if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 verse 13 is kind of where we're going to get started. We're going to end in Matthew chapter 5, but uh, we will, like I said, we're going to kind of be uh, all over the Sermon on the Mount today, seeing a few things, so uh, be ready to flip some pages from time to time. Uh, we'll be starting our study on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how long this uh, series will last. I assume that it would probably last about two years. There is just so much in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Based on the week that we have had this past week in our country, um, one of the things that I have been reminded of is that Romans chapter 12 tells us, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, there are a couple implications there. One of them being that there will be people who don't want to have peace with us. And I think we have seen plenty of that this past week. But how can you biblically be at peace with all men? And that brings me to one of the reasons that I actually decided to do this study, and that is it shows us how. The Sermon on the Mount shows us how to be people who strive for peace with everyone insofar as it depends on us. For 400 years, God was silent toward Israel. Following Malachi's ministry, there were no more prophets that God sent to, to speak new revelation. Uh, there were no instances in which uh, you know, the angel of the Lord came down and visited his people or rescued God's people. There were no instances in which God's presence was manifested in some way like it was in the wilderness back in Exodus in uh, in their presence as he led them out of Egypt. No, there was none of this stuff for 400 years. There was only silence from God. And for 400 years, God preserved only the faithful remnant among the Israelites, those who knew and who believed that God had promised to send the Messiah. They held on to that promise. They believed that promise. They continued to trust in God's promises even when God was being completely silent, which is what the remnant always does, by the way. But as Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 tell us, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Christ the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and lived among man for approximately 33 years. And during the final three years of his life on earth, he had an earthly ministry in which he had 12 disciples. And he told them that when he left, he would ask the Father to send another helper or another advocate who would help them to remember all that Jesus had taught them. The earliest people who believed the testimony of the disciples and were converted 
were Jewish. We read about it in the book of Acts, in the second chapter of Acts, how Peter preached to them on Pentecost, and 3,000 people were converted on the spot. Jews from other nations had come to Jerusalem only to hear uh, the disciples each speaking to them in their native tongue. And so there's no question, there's, no real, there's really no room to dispute that the earliest converts to Christianity were Jewish. And so it only makes sense that the first gospel to be written would be a gospel testimony written primarily for the Jewish people. And this is exactly why, uh, what we find in Matthew. We find that Matthew wrote his gospel testimony for Jewish people. Uh, one of the central purposes of Matthew's gospel is to show that Jesus was the Messiah, or the Greek word being Christos, or, or Christ, uh, as evidenced by Christ fulfilling the prophecies that only the Messiah could fulfill. That is really the purpose of Matthew's entire gospel. And so to that end, actually, the word fulfill is found 15 times throughout Matthew's gospel. But Matthew's gospel serves as a wonderful bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's no wonder that it's actually the first book that we find in our New Testament uh, canon. Uh, and it's in Matthew's Gospel that we actually find the longest sermon to be uh, recorded in the New Testament in, in narrative form. It's a sermon that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. I think we would all agree that every single word... Every word in all of Scripture, every word in our Bible, even the, the twos and the thes and the, the ifs and the little words, even those, all of them are sacred, all of them are infallible, all of them are divinely inspired or God-breathed. They are thus inerrant and they are thus authoritative. But the words spoken by Jesus while just as sacred and just as inerrant, just as infallible, just as authoritative as the rest of Scripture, are nevertheless worthy of having a very special place in our hearts. And this is so for the same reason that we uh, treasure the memories we have of hearing the voice of a loved one say, I love you, uh, more than we treasure those same words being passed on to us by somebody else. That is, it's one thing for one of you to tell me, uh, hey, your wife says she loves you. It's quite another thing for me to hear her say, I love you. Uh, both mean the exact same thing, but one coming from the source, the object of my love, uh, obviously has a more special place in my heart. And so it is when Jesus speaks, it holds a special place in our hearts because Christ is the object of our faith. Christ is the object of our love. Uh, the ministry of Jesus began after his temptation in the wilderness, as we, we set the context here a little bit. Jesus had been baptized in, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, and then proceeded to be led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was then tempted by the devil in the weakest conditions that he could possibly experience. You think you're weak after not eating for one day? Try not eating for 40 days. Yeah, he was in the weakest conditions he could possibly be in. And unlike Adam, who felt a temptation when he was in the most optimal conditions that a man could possibly experience, Jesus, even in his weakest state, overcame the temptation of the devil. And it was only after that that Jesus' earthly ministry really commenced. We read this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. It says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill, there's that word, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach 
and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's where Jesus' earthly ministry begins. After he has uh, overcome the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. It's at this point that Jesus calls his disciples and begins ministering to them in the region of Galilee. In verses 18 to 22, that's what we, we read about, that he calls his first disciples. Uh, G- Matthew's fourth chapter ends with these words. It says, Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread among all the people. The, the news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is what leads us to the setting for the Sermon on the Mount. This is what sets the stage for the preaching of the most lengthy sermon we have from Jesus in Scripture. And so it makes perfect sense why Jesus was going throughout this region performing miracles. Uh, Not only did it fulfill prophecies that were specifically related to His credentials as the Messiah, but it also drew the attention of people. It drew masses of crowds to follow Him, that they could bring people who were sick, people who had disabilities to Him, and He was healing them. And so they're, they're following Him everywhere He goes, and they're, they're coming from long distances. Word is spreading. And so you know, we see that He had some followers prior to these miracles, but it was really the miracles, the working of these miracles that drew people to him from around the entire region. The, the miracles therefore established his credibility and his authority. And it also got their attention. The, the miracles really served to give all these people who were following him and who were coming from, from regions that were fairly distant, it gave them every reason that they could possibly need to listen very closely to what Jesus had to say. And that brings us to the point that I want to make here in our opening introductory lesson on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's actually the lesson uh, that the entire Sermon on the Mount serves. Sometimes Jesus was very clear about why he said something. Sometimes he would leave it to us to figure out for ourselves. Uh, But he very explicitly would tell us exactly why he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The sermon extends from the beginning of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7. And at the end of chapter 7, if you want to turn there, Jesus tells us exactly why he preached this sermon. There was a very specific goal that he had in mind, a very specific purpose that Jesus had for preaching this sermon. He says this in chapter 7, verse 24. He says, Therefore, this is like his conclusion, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount in a nutshell, right there. That you would act on them if you hear them. That you would hear His words and they wouldn't just fill your mind like information does, but that they would penetrate your heart and that you would act on them. Now, of course, he would illustrate that, uh, the, the, the whole idea of building a house on the rock uh, with the parable of building on a rock versus uh, building on sinking sand. But the point that I want to draw our attention to is that the Sermon on the Mount is given as a way of life that is to be experienced and lived out by anyone and by everyone who follows Jesus. It's not a sermon that's just given 
to make you feel good. It's not a sermon that's given uh, just to, to inform you of some things, although it does inform our minds of many things that we would not naturally be inclined to think or believe. But it's given primarily as information that would cause transformation. We are to act upon His words. We're to be diligent to build our lives upon His Word. Because the fact is, whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not, every single one of us is building our lives on something. We're all building our lives on something for some reason. And in the end, it will be revealed that everything but the Word of God is sinking sand. And so when the storms come, you're going to sink. You have no foundation that will hold you. Jesus likens His words, on the other hand, to a rock. And tells us that everything other than His Word will ultimately prove to fail as a foundation upon which to build our lives. Friends, Jesus stands before us here in the Sermon on the Mount as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, of course. He stands before us as the only Savior of the world. Indeed, the only Savior that God has provided for the redemption of sinners who are by nature and by choice bound and destined for hell on the broad road that leads to destruction. But Jesus stands before us not only as the King of kings, not only as the Lord of lords, not only as the Savior of the world, but He also stands before us here as rabbi, as teacher. We can never have just part of Jesus without having all of Jesus. The Christian life can't be divided up between uh, the, the, the redeemed and the forgiven life and the life that walks in obedience to the teachings of Jesus. Those are two sides of the same coin. You can't separate them. If you try to separate them, the whole thing just falls apart. It's worthless. But if we are indeed redeemed, if we are indeed forgiven, we are also to listen to and to heed the words of our Lord when He speaks. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson, quote, what we believe and how we live are joined together. End quote. The Sermon on the Mount touches on actually several subjects that I think are absolutely vital, if not entirely central, to what it even means to be a Christian to begin with, or to to live like a Christian. It, It touches on virtue. It touches on character. It touches on what role the the law of God is to play in our lives. Uh, It touches on trusting in God when we're tempted to fear or worry. It touches on the danger of judging in a hypocritical manner. Uh, This sermon actually addresses these and, and so many other issues that are so important for us to correctly understand if we are to live our lives as Christians should. Last month's issue of Table Talk magazine was actually on the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what Burke Parsons said in the intro. Uh, and I, I loved what he had to say here. He said, quote, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us not only how to act, but who we are as citizens of the kingdom of God. He explained to us that kingdom living is about not simply outward actions, but the attitudes and intentions of the heart, end quote. And so before we proceed, I think it's important that we understand that this is not a pep talk to the world to tell people how to be a better you. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce notes that, quote, in dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, we're dealing with the need for a new life rather than with a legalistic system of morality, end quote. That is, it's not given to us as a standard that's impossible for, uh, for us to live up to so that we can say, see how awful you are? Come on, do better. Uh, you know, improve your behavior. That, that's the way the, the social justice cult uh, interprets things like the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, They they want to apply this to humanity in general. 
But Boyce notes, uh, he notes of the, the social justice cult's use of the Sermon on the Mount in his own day, uh, saying, quote, it was aware of Christ's ethic, but it tried to preach the ethic to those who were not possessed of Christ's life. Consequently, the attempt to actualize Christ's standard as a uh, standard of humanity conduct universally was doomed to disheartening failure, end quote. So this sermon, let's understand from the beginning. This sermon was for followers of Jesus. It was not for casual listeners. It was not for people who just wanted to add some information to their brains. It was not for unregenerate pagans. As we go through the sermon, there will be times in which we see that Jesus is using His words as a mirror to show the unregenerate pagan, their need for a new life. For example, when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus there wasn't only showing the people the inadequacy of, uh, of their own righteousness, and he wasn't only showing them the inadequacy of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, but he was showing them the impossibility of any adequacy unto salvation on their behalf. He was showing them the inadequacy of any and every human effort to enter into the kingdom of heaven in contrast with the all-sufficient righteousness that is found in Christ alone. The response of the audience to, uh, to that statement that your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Their response must have been something like, who in the world could be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees but God Himself? Exactly. That's the point He's trying to bring them to. It's actually a, a claim to divinity. So let's understand from the outset that this is not an act of legislation for all of humanity to put into effect that Jesus is creating here in the Sermon on the Mount. Rather, He's giving us as His people, as people who believe in Him, as people who act on His words, He's giving us a manifesto for how life as a Christian is to be lived out. We just don't expect this kind of behavior from the unregenerate around us. But we do expect it, at least in some uh, form or degree, from those who profess faith in Christ. And this becomes very apparent even from the very outset of the sermon. Uh, Looking at how the sermon begins, Jesus, of course, begins with the Beatitudes. And immediately after the Beatitudes, He says, you are the salt of the earth. That's chapter 5, verse 13. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Now, how many of you think he's saying those things to pagan unregenerates? He's not. Of course he's not. He's addressing his disciples, which is actually made very clear in the opening verses of the chapter, which we're going to get to here in just a minute. But he's doing it also in such a way that the pagan unregenerates around him can hear him. But the point is that this sermon, his, his kingdom manifesto, as some have called it, is addressed only to those who truly follow him. See, you can legislate morality. In fact, I'd say that all legislation is based on some moral principle. People who say, oh, you can't legislate morality, what they're really saying is you can't legislate your morality. But they are actually trying to legislate a moral principle by saying it's wrong to legislate morality. So they are legislating morality without any public vote uh, right there by making that argument. So, see, you can legislate morality, but you cannot legislate something like heart transformation. You can't legislate salvation. You can't legislate faith. And so you cannot legislate faithful living, which proceeds, which flows from faith. And this sermon will reveal our desperate need for the new heart. The Sermon on the Mount reveals that. So the Sermon on the Mount is not public law, but it is... Uh, something of an exposition of the Christian ethic. 
for His people. And the reason it's given is because our lives are meant to be different. In fact, we just saw that that's how Jesus starts out His sermon. By saying, let your light shine. How does that happen? By our lives being noticeably different from the world around us. Yes, we are meant to be the salt of the earth. Yes, we are called to shine the light of Christ into this dark world that's getting darker and darker by the day. Your life should stand out from the world in the midst of the darkness around us. We all heard the news this past week of Christians in a school who were murdered in cold blood this past week. And, and we saw that the blame was very quickly shifted away from the person who did the shooting. It was shifted on Christians. It was put on people who were faithfully following Christ. Children, adults. So let me ask you this. How do you respond to that? How, how can you be a light in that kind of darkness? And that is dark. That's the darkest our country has ever seen. That Christians would be blamed for a mass murder. The Sermon on the Mount will show us how to respond. It will show us how to be a light in the darkness and the culture around us. And so one of the reasons that, uh, that I've decided to do this study is because the darkness in the world around us is accelerating. The, the moral freefall that our culture is in is just accelerating. We live in such evil times. But Christians can rejoice even in this because the darker the world around us grows, the greater our opportunities to shine the light of Christ will be. And by the way, the easier it will be. Just like if you have a flashlight and you turn it on in the daytime, you can't see it very well. The darker it gets, the brighter it seems. So it is with us. The darker the world around us becomes, the brighter and the easier it is to see the light of Christ shining through our lives. And friends, we have such an opportunity right now to shine the light of Christ into the darkness. But you cannot live your life the way that the world lives theirs. Not if you're going to shine. This is no time to be a Christian chameleon. This is no time to be blending into the culture around us. This is a time for Christians, for people who really and truly follow Jesus, to live out our faith in Jesus in such a way that the world won't be able to help. But notice, and the Sermon on the Mount is a guide to that end. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, quote, What would we know about what kind of people Christians ought to be? Would we know the character at which Christians ought to aim? Would we know the outward walk and inward habit of mind which become a follower of Jesus? Then let us often study the Sermon on the Mount. End quote. So realize this, friends. The reason that Jesus came and died and asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit to dwell within us was so that we could actually live out the kind of life, the kind of ethic that's outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen very carefully to what Paul wrote to Titus. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11-14, to 14, he said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now what defines good deeds for us? Scripture does. 
The culture doesn't. The culture doesn't tell us what is good. The culture doesn't tell us what is right. Sometimes they accidentally get it correct. But the Word of God is the only source of authority for what, is, uh, what can be rightly considered a good deed versus a lawless deed. Because the truth is, much of what the world considers to be good in God's eyes is indeed lawless. So don't miss the meaning of what Paul said to Timothy, friends. He's, he's saying that Jesus died to save us from the human ethic, from the culture's sense of morality, from lawlessness, which is what we ourselves are surrounded by in the world every single day. Jesus died to make it possible for us to live by a different ethic, by a holy and righteous ethic. Indeed, by an ethic that is far more righteous than even the ethic that the scribes and the Pharisees had because we stand in Christ's own perfect righteousness and God is growing us in Christ's perfect likeness. So how do we shine our light before men as Jesus will instruct us to do in this sermon The answer is by unapologetically living our lives in a way that is altogether different from the world, from the culture around us. And so in that sense, the Sermon on the Mount also serves as something of a means of evangelism because the world should notice the way that uh, we're living our lives, the way that Uh, that we are different from them. They should see that you have something unshakable. They should see that you have something that's bigger than anything they have, something that's stronger, something that's greater than anything that they have. And in times like these, given the degree of darkness and moral decline that our culture is just free-falling into, it is not difficult for a Christian to shine. And this is one of the things that caused the church to be noticed from the very beginning. And it's still the case today. You and I need to know, friends, that by living out the principles that are outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, it simply means that we will be yielding our lives in willful submission to the authority of Jesus. It means casting aside the hellish lie that we can have Christ as our Savior without also having Him as our Lord and our Teacher. We study this not only as a guide to Christian living, but as a constant reminder of our own need for grace. Because the standards that are set in the Sermon on the Mount, we can't do them without grace. We can't even come close to them without the Holy Spirit residing within us and giving us not only the desire to do those things, but the ability. There is nothing that so leads to us understanding our need for grace as seeing what it's supposed to accomplish in our lives. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' words, he says, quote, Nothing shows me the absolute need of the new birth and of the Holy Spirit and His work within so much as the Sermon on the Mount He goes on to say, there is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace as the Sermon on the Mount, end quote. And if you need motivation beyond that, (laughs) consider the blessings that this sermon uh, begins with uh, and, and promises to those who live according to the principles that Jesus lays out for us. But with all that established, let's now... Uh, look at and consider the preface to the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Matthew writes, When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, To be continued. We'll get to that, right, next month. But don't forget, the, the, the fact that we, that, we, that we see here is that Jesus um, doesn't go and preach in, in a big fancy building. Uh, in fact, the, the greatest sermon ever preached, at least the, the, 
the, the longest sermon in Scripture. Uh, it, it wasn't in a cathedral. It wasn't in a synagogue. It wasn't in a megachurch with overflow seating across the street and down a little bit. No, Jesus had no place to lay His head, and He had no pulpit from which to proclaim this sermon. It's actually an example of what we call open-air preaching, which is what our preachers do when they go to football games and baseball games and uh, Benny Hinn conventions uh, where they preach outside. They'll be doing that next week. Um, praise the Lord for that. But this is kind of an introduction to open-air preaching. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had the temple in Jerusalem. They had the synagogues and nevertheless, they had corrupted God's Word and they had undermined its authority with the teachings and the traditions of man. Things that the Jewish religious leaders continue to do to this very day. But Jesus was driven out of the cities onto a mountainside where this amazing sermon was preached into the open air. And it wasn't even a special mountain. It wasn't even a, a distinguished mountain. Matthew doesn't even name the mountain. Uh, A.W. Pink says this, he says, quote, Nor was it one of the holy mountains, nor one of the mountains of Zion, but a common mountain, end quote. What a beautiful reminder that the whole earth is the Lord's, and His gospel is to be preached everywhere. It's interesting to note how many things Jesus did throughout his ministry on a mountain or a hill. In fact, that's a theme throughout Matthew's, uh, Matthew's gospel. Uh, Jesus preached his first and perhaps greatest sermon on this mountain. Uh, he was transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John uh, on a mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives yet another uh, teaching discourse. We call it the Olivet Discourse from the Mount of Olives. Uh, another mountain, uh, a sermon on his uh, returning in the coming day of judgment. Uh, but consider that also Jesus died on what we call Calvary's Hill. So many things, so many of the significant moments, the significant uh, teachings of Jesus were done on hills and mountains. Why do you think that is? What's the significance of, of going up on a mountain to do these things? And I'd say, well, in, in this case, the text isn't exactly explicit uh, or clear in answering that, uh, that question, but I, I do think there are some hints that can be found throughout the Scriptures. Uh, sometimes we, we see Jesus going up on mountains to actually get away from people uh, who were following Him. That isn't the case here. Uh, rather, we're told that He sees the multitudes, and for that reason, He ascends the mountain upon seeing them. So it seems apparent that he does it, at least in part, to be seen and heard by the people who clearly were able to hear, because when all is said and done, we read this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, we see that they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So the mountain served that purpose. It allowed him to be seen and heard. But consider also that when God gave Moses the law, it was on a mountain. It required that Moses ascend the mountain to meet with God. Now we see that God Himself is coming down to explain the spirit of the law. See, the Jews thought that they were innocent of murder, which, of course, the, the Ten Commandments, the law prohibited. But Jesus is going to teach them in this sermon that they were guilty of murder in God's sight uh, simply because of what filled their hearts. They didn't see themselves as adulterers either because uh, you know, they, they hadn't physically committed the act of adultery. But Jesus is going to inform them that, they, uh, that, that even looking lustfully at somebody uh, is enough to be rendered guilty of adultery. But the point is that the law was given on a mountain and now it's being explained on a mountain. The giving of the law involved man going up to meet with God, and the explanation of the law that we find in the Sermon on the Mount involves God coming down to meet with man. We should also see here that Jesus 
doesn't stand while he preaches. That's another note that Matthew leaves for us here. Uh, Rather, we see that he sits. And I've always thought, well, okay, uh, the, the significance of that is, well, that's just what teachers did in the day, right? That's what I was taught in seminary. Uh, that's what I've read in, in most commentaries. Uh, th- that was simply the, the custom at the time. Teachers would, would sit and uh, the, the students, the listeners, the learners, the disciples, they would gather around the teacher and listen. Uh, the, the issue with that uh, being the norm of the day is that it would kind of silence the teacher to those who were uh, even a little bit far off. Um, and, and so that very well may have been the, the normal thing in that day and age, but let's also consider the fact that teachers uh, aren't the only ones who sit when they speak. Uh, I'll just get straight to the point. Kings and judges also sit when they issue decrees. Jesus was indeed a teacher, of course, but He is also a king, and He is also a judge. Indeed, He is the judge. Uh, He's the king of kings. And the subject at hand here is how the citizens of the kingdom over which He reigns are to live their lives. Matthew Henry observes this. He says, quote, He sat down as a judge or lawgiver, end quote. Now, where do we get that from? We get that from the last book of the Old Testament. One of the last things that God gave to His people before He was silent for 400 years reveals that the Messiah would sit. When we read Malachi chapter 3, we get a full understanding of why Jesus sat. It was actually a fulfillment of prophecy in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 to 3 says this, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Verse 3, He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. The Messiah was to come and sit. And thus, in this instance, it's very important that we see that he sat as he taught. Now, one other observation here. Matthew tells us that Jesus opened his mouth and began to teach them. And that is something that is so easy to just breeze right over. It seems just like uh, kind of an uh, accidental thing, like something that doesn't have any significance. It's just one of those things. And he tells us about it But it's interesting to see that Matthew tells us about a lot of things that Jesus uh, said and did, and yet this is actually the only time that Jesus' words are preceded with those words by being told that Jesus opened His mouth and began to speak. And the significance of it seems very clear. The significance is that His mouth, indeed God's mouth, had been closed to the Jews for 400 years. And here he is, finally opening his mouth to speak to them. The Sermon on the Mount is what truly marks the end of those 400 years of silence from God toward Israel. Again, in the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi, we read this in chapter 3, verse 7. It says, From the days... Of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And the Sermon on the Mount is what provides the answer to that question. It reveals how the religious leaders of the Jews had subverted God's holy law, keeping the letter of it, but failing to even attempt to live according to the spirit of it, which was only given for their good. 
There's one final thing that I think needs to be said about the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to make sure that I am just crystal clear about this because there's an issue that persists in the church throughout the ages. And it is as surely an issue in our own age as it has been in every age. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it best when he said, the main heresy is always the same. Justification by works. The issue is the necessity, the necessary distinction between law and gospel. So do not hear Jesus' preaching, His elaboration and teachings on the law, and think that they are in and of themselves the way to receive salvation or a means to salvation. They are not fruit. They are root. Or they're fruit. They're not root. See, the law says, do this. Right? If you, if you want to be saved, you have to do this, and you have to do this. This is the way to live. This is what God demands. That is law. But the Gospel says, you have failed to do this. And you have failed to do it badly. You have failed to do what God demands. But even though you have, Jesus didn't. And His perfect righteousness is freely imputed to all who believe on Him. Do you see the difference between those two things? One is law. One said, says you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do that. The other says it's done. See, do this. That's not good news. Oh, too late. I've already, I've already failed to do that. Jesus has done it for you. Now that is good news. See the difference? There's a huge difference between law and gospel. But when you confuse them, which so many people in our day and age have done, when you confuse the law and gospel, all you get is law. You might call it gospel, but it's not gospel. There are many in our days who say absolutely ridiculous and unbiblical, unorthodox things like faith and faithfulness are the same thing. They'll, they'll say something like living in obedience to the principles laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. That's faith. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. That is faithfulness. Faithfulness proceeds from faith, but faith and faithfulness are two entirely different things, just like fruit and root are different things. It's the result of salvation and not the means of receiving it. You need to understand, when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, that a person can completely fail to uphold every single principle that's outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, and they can still be saved. You ask how? And the answer is because while you have failed, and you have, while you have failed, Christ has not. And indeed, every one of us has failed to live by the principles in the Sermon on the Mount in countless, countless ways. But God has nevertheless clothed all of His people in Christ's perfect, unblemished robes of righteousness. That's gospel. That's gospel. The Sermon on the Mount, therefore, we have to understand, it is not saying, do this and you will be saved. What it is saying is that you were saved to do this. Ephesians 2.10 again. We are His workmanship created, by, created for good works in Christ for which He has, uh, that's why He created us, which He has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And so with all of this established, let us clearly understand that the Sermon on the Mount is for you, but only if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's going to show us what you are completely and unequivocally incapable of doing, and the truth of the matter is you don't even want to do it. I found it very interesting that even Chuck Smith who himself was, was fiercely Arminian, said this of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, quote, I never discuss this sermon with anyone who is not a Christian. They cannot understand it. End quote. But if you're a Christian, it's for you. It's for those who have ears to hear. It's for those who have eyes to see. It's for those who are citizens, first and foremost, of the kingdom that Christ came to establish 
first and foremost above any other earthly kingdom. We're citizens of earthly kingdoms, of course, yes, but that is to be secondary in our lives. And so with that said, there is no king or president or governor whose authority supersedes the authority of Jesus. Now, I've already mentioned some of the significant times that Matthew records in which Jesus uh, does things or speaks uh, things that are very significant on mountains or hills. But there's one more occasion that I want to draw our attention to that Matthew uh, is very specific about telling us that Jesus does on a mountain. Uh, Jesus also gave the Great Commission on a mountain. We read in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you know what that means? It means that to the end of the age, we're supposed to be teaching what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount. We're to observe all that he has commanded us, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he instructs us in so many things. He intended for these things to be passed down in the process of discipleship from one generation to the next, and for us to put these principles into practice for disciples, not for pagan unregenerates. They don't need, uh, they, they don't need a, set of how to a set of instructions on how to live. What they need is the gospel. They need the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount gives us a way of life that is to be experienced and lived out by anyone and everyone who follows Jesus. It's not a sermon that's given simply for uh, our information, but for our transformation. And if we're going to live our lives in submission to Christ's authority, we must learn to both hear and act upon His words. We must not only be hearers, of his word we must also be doers of his word and so to that end i pray that the lord would use our study over the coming years in this uh, sermon of his most famous sermon christ's most famous sermon to bless us to guide us to grow us in christ's own likeness and to grow us in our love for his word and for his ways teaching us the joy and the blessing of humble and obedient submission to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we do this for Your Word and for the many purposes that it serves. It shows us how far we fall short of your glory. But it also shows us how Christ lived the perfect life and how his righteousness is imputed to us. Nevertheless, Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And as we grow in his likeness, we want to grow in the kind of life that he outlines in the Sermon on the Mount. We recognize that apart from your grace, we cannot. Apart from your Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we will not. But you have given us everything that we need that's necessary to live a life that's pleasing unto you. You've given us Christ. You've given us the Holy Spirit. And you've given us ears to hear and eyes to see. So Father, Use this passage, this text, over the next couple of years to show us how to be a light in the darkness. We pray for opportunities to shine that the world may see the goodness and the power of Christ and that we would have opportunities to share the gospel for His glory. In his name we pray. Amen.